We're going to look at the topic of vision today. Every good campaign has a, a vision that has something that, that kind of helps everything else to coalesce, to come together, to be easily communicated, and to help it, in some sense, make sense. This, this kind of crystallized idea of, of bringing all these disparate things together. And I can confess to you that, that, that thematic preaching or, or looking at topics is, is one of those things that just it terrifies me. I don't think I'm very good at it. I don't enjoy it really uh, very much. And so as we looked at the idea, and I met with a campaign consultant and these others, and he said, look, you're going to get to do a topical sermon on vision. I said, well, that sounds terrible. That sounds terrible. And hopefully, hopefully you'll, you'll see my personality kind of coming out in this and, and see how God has led and directed us. But, but I just want to catch up some of you. Some of you haven't been here over the last couple of years, and so you're, you're coming in, and you see signs, and you see poster boards, and you're wondering, what in the world are they on about? Did they decide a couple of weeks ago to head down this path to, to, to renovate their facilities? Well, no, it's, it's been a long process. We seem to not do anything uh, in the short fashion, unfortunately, or, or fortunately, depending on your perspective. Probably, if you've been involved with it, you would say, unfortunately, amen? Amen. Not very many of you said that, so... You like meetings. We're going to talk later. And so I was looking at my calendar, actually, looking at when did we first have this planning team, and when did this group first start meeting? And I went back, and I found an email from January of 2015 where we first had the list of names for the people who would would join the planning team. Now, this planning team was tasked with, was given the the, uh, non-enviable task of really deciding what do we do and what does it look like? And so we got these people in this room, men and women across generations in this room, and we began to ask them to kind of order ministries, order priorities. Uh, What are some things that we'd like to see happen? What are some things we'd like to do? And we had Larry Baker, who is the guru of Excel. The people of Excel, when they want to make changes to their program, they call Larry Baker, and they say, Larry Baker, we're thinking about doing this. And you know what Larry Baker says? You fools. (laughs) Not really, not really. He says, wonderful idea, let's incorporate that. And so uh, he began to put together this Excel spreadsheet and kind of show us some ways and, and, and to match all of our needs and these things. And, and eventually we had an opportunity to meet together uh, as a whole body. And so we had our dream night. We brought in the architects. And, and, and what we found is, is that we had a tremendous amount of a unity. Our, our vision began to coalesce. And we really attribute that to all of us, in some sense, being of one accord, one mindset as we move through. And so this has been a terrifically long process, and it's been a process where we've seen where God is, is cutting stuff off, and he's moving us, and he is shaping and, and giving us a picture of what it might look like if we were to complete these things. And so when I begin to think through, uh, where can I go in Scripture to find some similar story or some similar account to, to a people who are kind of heading towards something, it was logical for me, it made sense for me to look at it from the perspective of the book of Exodus. And I hope today what you see in the book of Exodus is, is kind of the proper way to go about uh, seeking to endeavor to discover the vision God has given you and to realize that vision. You see, when you open up the book of Exodus, and, and many of you are familiar with it, even if you've not read it, either you've seen Charlton Heston's uh, famed portrayal of Moses or you watched uh, one of the animated versions with your kiddos. And so you recognize there are some things in there that are not historically accurate, even though that they are certainly entertaining. And so when you open up the book of Exodus, within that first little paragraph there in chapter 1, you have a couple hundred years of history. 
And what you have in that couple hundred years of history is you see the people, the Israelites, who were once privileged in the land are now relatively unknown and persecuted in the land. They are in Egypt, and so they move from a place of being privileged to a place of being persecuted. And so this new pharaoh comes in, a king who did not know Joseph, and he begins to have them be uh, persecuted, begins to make their workload be incredibly difficult. And then lo and behold, um, the man of the hour arrives, Moses. And so he's born. He's raised in the house of Pharaoh, and, and when he's a, a young man, he goes out and he commits murder. And so he's, he flees for his life, and he goes to Midian. And what you no- notice about Moses is that really, for the first 80 years of his life, or 80 years after that time, he is relatively unknown. I mean, guy's a, a shepherd of Midian. He's kind of hanging out on the backside of the hill, and, and, and not a lot's going on with him. But lo and behold, we come to chapter 3. Everybody turn to chapter 3 in the book of Exodus. Chapter 3 opens up and it says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And so we find that Moses is thoroughly engaged in giving himself to the occupation of being a shepherd. And so there's nothing inherently intrinsic or, or, or valuable about Moses. He's just some guy minding his own business. And as he's minding his own business, he stumbles across a burning bush. And from the, from the heart of this burning bush, he hears the voice of God cry out. And it, been, it begins to give him direction. It begins to help things come together in his mind. And it also gives him a mission. Look at verse 8 in chapter 3 of the book of Exodus. God speaking to Moses says, I have come down, speaking of the Israelites, to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he begins to describe the destination that they're going to go to, and it's all in terms that resonate with Moses, that will resonate with the people that Moses goes to. And so he gives him a clear, concise vision. It's a good land. It's a broad land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. He's describing it all in positive attributes that resonate with Moses. But in this communication, in this communication, we find that that frequently with them and with us, that when we have a vision of where we're going, that frequently we find ourselves misapplying it and we see the destination as the goal. See, what we're going to see as we study the book of Exodus today, the destination cannot be the goal. You see, we too have uh, a coalesced or a well-articulated vision. We have uh, a vision that we've described and kind of what we're going to do in the midst of this process. And so one of the things on Dream Night that came together that was clearly communicated, we heard over and over and over again, is people said, we need a front door that makes sense. And so we, we need a front door that makes sense. And so we need a, a clearly uh, well-defined front door. We need something off Wesley Street that says, this is where you go in, right? So maybe you don't think that's a problem. Maybe like Judy, you've been here for 51 years. Man, I've got a, a friend of mine who's been in the ministry for 40 years. He, he pastors in College Station, Texas. And uh, they were here this summer and they were coming to visit. And I was on the phone with them. I said, all right, man, when you get here, you're going to come up Stonewall. You're going to be on the east side of the building. You're going to go in the door that says office. And he said, hold up, Bob. I've been in ministry for 40 years. I don't need anybody to tell me what door to go in. I said, okay. All right. 
You just figure it out then. You just figure it out then. At the end of the service, he said, that is the most confusing place I've ever been to. I went to three doors, all locked. I said, let me just refresh your memory. I don't need anything from you. I've been in ministry 40 years. Right? So one of the things we find over and over again is that people wanted us to have a clearly defined front door. And when Valerie and I did a surprise visit before, uh, before I came to Ridgecrest to pastor it, I, I went on to Google Maps and I just put in 6801 Wesley and, and so I followed those directions. And, I, and so I parked in the Alliance Bank parking lot and I walked in the doors, those doors behind you, and I walked into no one, no one. There was a podium with a, with a bulletin on it. I thought, well, this is friendly. This is, this is friendly. And so one of the things we, we decided was that we wanted a, a clearly marked, we want to be able to communicate clearly, this is where you come in, this is where you can come in. The second thing that people said over and over and over again is we get frequently described as an incredibly friendly church. People say, man, y'all are so stinking friendly. I said, well, when you pay people to show up, it's amazing how friendly they can be. And so we have an incredibly friendly church, but they said, you don't have anywhere for us to stand, for us to visit, for us to be together. It seems like all the hallways are just saying, get out, get out, quickly as you can. Get out, get out, as quickly as you can. I said, well, that's, you know, that's just kind of what hallways are. I don't know how you make a hallway more attractive. And so they, we said that the planning team and on Dream Night as a body, we said we need a place, a central gathering place where everybody can come together and we can just kind of stretch back and talk and visit and have fellowship with one another. And so we heard from you and, and we heard together as we had conversations that we need a centrally uh, located gathering space. And this is what you see in this shot here. Now the next thing that came up is we need some work in the nursery. We have uh, had a, a baby boom of sorts and continue to have. Uh, we've had uh, an additional child. We came here with a six-month-old. Kelsey and Jason have had two. A number of our, our folks have had a lot of babies since they've been here. I don't know what it is about this place, but don't drink out of the water fountain. You know what I'm saying? And so, <coughs> and so we said we needed a, a larger, more secure nursery. And so what you see from this picture is the, the entrance to the nursery area, and then you see that large glassed-in space behind it. That's a place for the kids in the nursery to go work off all the sugar that I swear you guys give them before you bring them to church, okay? Here, look. Here's sugar. Here's caffeine. You just go, buddy. You just go. You could be worn out and take a great nap. That's why you do it. I know that's what you're doing. And so what we see in that is we have a really well-defined, clearly articulated vision. We want a better entrance off Wesley. We want to make it obvious. We want a centralized gathering area. We want a place where we can fellowship, where we can uh, break bread, so to speak, with one another, or drink coffee. And then we want a place where we can care for the, the, for the youngest, for the most vulnerable among our congregation. We want a, a better nursery setting. And so that's what we look at. But I can tell you, and I've told people all over this year, as we've been in this campaign, that if, if, if you walk away and you say the most important thing we did this year was, was raise money, the most important thing we did this year was build this, then I've absolutely failed. Let's move off the picture. Do you hear what I'm saying? Building this, raising this money, cannot be the most important thing we do this year. It absolutely can't. What we see in the book of Exodus is an amazing illustration when we follow that narrative arc. You see these people as God is moving through and he is journeying with them. Really in uh, chapters 3 through chapter 40, chapters 3 through 40 only gives us about a year 
And so you have a couple hundred years in that first paragraph. You have 80 years to the second chapter. And then chapter 3 through chapter 40 is about a year. It takes about a year for all those things to begin to unfold. And during that year, God is moving, he is guiding, and he is directing. And over the course of that year, when we come to chapter 32, we find that Moses goes up on the mountain to to receive a word from God, and God is communicating to Moses. And so everybody looks up at the mountain, and they can see the cloud around it. They can see what's taking place. But in chapter 32, it says, we don't even know what happened to this Moses guy. He went up there. We don't even know if he's coming back. We don't know how any of these things are going on. And so they turn to Aaron, and they say, Aaron, we need a God. We need something we can see. Up, get up. Verse 1, make, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't even know what has become of him. You see, they want something immediate. They want something they can see. And so Aaron takes their ornaments, he takes their jewelry, he fashions a god for them, and they begin to worship that god. And as Moses is up there communing with God. God speaks to Moses and said, these people, they are sinning against me. And so Moses comes down off of the mountain. And what we find is that when Moses gets down off the mountain and he begins to to administer justice to those who have sinned, those who have departed God, and then ultimately God resumes his communication in chapter 33 and verse 1. It says, the Lord said to Moses, listen to this, depart, go up from here, You and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. Does this shock anybody else? He's still taking them to the land. They've just been engaged in heinous idol worship. Somewhere along the trip, they recognize, or they begin to come into this idea that where they're going is the most important thing for them. And so God sends Moses down, he communicates to him, and he says, get up and go. They're still going to this land. Look, he describes it in verse 3, very similar to how he described it in chapter 3 and verse 8. He says, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but something has changed. Something has changed. He says, but I will not go up among you. Lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. The destination has not changed. But the way they're headed there for the previous 31 chapters has been radically altered. They are still headed towards the land. But God no longer is going to go with them. I want you to recognize something. You have a, a feeling that God is calling you to do something. Our, our tendency is to become fixated on, on making that a reality. It's getting married, it's getting a job, it's having a kid, it's building a home, it's paying off debt. Whatever it is for you, it's making it through this difficult time, it's making it through this sickness, it's making it through this depression, it's making it through whatever it is that you're currently in. Our tendency is to focus on this thing being alleviated, this thing working out. This thing being realized. In so doing, we completely disregard the journey God is taking us on. But for many of us, it's completely okay. 
We just want what's before us. Do we not? Many of us this morning, if we're being honest and God said, I'll give you your heart's desire, but I'm not going with you. Our hearts would be, would, would be torn because in some sense we say, well, I do want this. I, I do want to be debt free. I do want to be married. I do want to have kids. I do want to have a job. I do want for these things to work out. But am I willing to sacrifice my relationship with God to get it? The Israelites were at a crossroads. God was clearly, clearly communicating to them that they could still go where he was going to take them. He just couldn't be a part of it. And what we see in their response is exactly the response we have to have in everything we do. Do you understand me? God communicates to them. I'm not going with you. And this is how the people respond. It says, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. God had told them to remove their ornaments. He had told them to take them off. And we recognize that it was this this exact same type of ornamentation, this, this jewelry that they had used just verses before to build an idol for them to worship. You see, they were so broken in their sin, they were so broken in their separation of relationship with God that the text tells us when we come into verse 6, it says, Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. They were so distraught at the fracture in relationship with God that they said, we can no longer wear this stuff because every time we put it on, it is a reminder to us of when God separated himself from us. Over the course of this campaign, we're seeking to raise this money, we're seeking to renovate our facilities, there will, become, there will come opportunities for us to still accomplish our goal, but to abandon God in the pursuit. I'm convinced of it. What we absolutely have to do is to recognize that this pursuit, that renovating our facilities, that raising this money can never be ultimate. The ultimate is God's campaign in renovating and changing our hearts. And what he's using to change our hearts, to lead us into rejoicing, is raising this money. Do you understand this? God leading the people into the land wasn't just to get them to a destination. It was to make them into a people. God using us to raise this money and to renovate our facilities is not an end. He is using this to make us a particular kind of people. A people who, when faced with getting what we want but losing our God, would be wrecked. We would be spiritually and emotionally wrecked. We would be people who cry out, people who see this as disastrous, not amazing and cheap. Interestingly, Moses inserts into this narrative account in verses 7 through 11 something that seems out of place. It seems out of place. You're reading through and you're saying, what in the world happened to them? We're kind of left hanging in the balance in some sense. But what we see in verse 4 is a people who are separated from God, a people who are far from God, a people wondering what it would look like to have a restored relationship with God. And what you see in verses 7 through 11 is a picture of intimacy with God. Verse 7 says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far from the camp, 
And he called at the tent of meeting, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise. Each would stand to his feet and watch until Moses had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of the cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak to Moses. Look what happens here. Verse 10. When all the people saw the pillar in the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his own tent. They were separated from God. They knew they were going to get to go to the land. They didn't know if God was going to go with them. They didn't know how it would change. And what we see here in 7 through 11 is Moses is still able to maintain incredible intimacy with God. So imagine this. You've got 600,000 plus people. And you're all gathered in this large encampment, and Moses, some, some place off in the distance, has set up this, this separate tent. It's outside the camp. It's away from everybody else. It's away from everything else. And as he goes out there, you see him moving, and there's this anticipation beating in your heart. There is this loneliness beating in your heart because you no longer have intimacy with God. But you recognize he is about to come face to face with God. Moses goes in, the cloud comes down, and they cry out in worship. Their worship of God is based upon Moses' intimacy with God, not their own. As Christians, you have an amazing opportunity not to worship God in this this face-to-face environment, not periodic or episodic where he comes down and he manifests himself in cloud, but you're able to worship God each and every day, each and every moment. How? You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. What God has made you is an intimate worshiper of himself. But we recognize that sin too finds its way into our own lives, does it not? It finds its way, and so we are engaged in in various pursuits. We're engaged in pursuits of pride, envy, lust, greed, pornography. We find ourselves enslaved enslaved to any number of sins. In, in, in the midst of this enslavement, we recognize there is a breach in fellowship with God. And so when you show up to church on Sundays or when you are listening to the radio or when you hear somebody give a testimony of what it's like to worship God, what does your heart say? It's saddened. It's broken. It's separated. So you see or you hear or you observe worship, but you do not find yourself being a worshiper. What we continue to see, what we go on to see with these people is that this restoration can work in them. This restoration can work in you to move you from merely being one who is an onlooker, seeing worship take place off in the periphery, to one who is actively engaged and personally worship him or herself. Amen? Moses begins to speak to God in verse 12, somewhat on behalf of the Israelites. Moses says to the Lord, See you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not yet let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and have also found favor in your sight. So he's trying to trade on the privileged position he has with God. He says, now therefore, verse 13, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And then he turns to the people. He says, consider too that this nation is your people. 
Moses begins to intercede on behalf of the people in some sense as a, as a, as a precursor to Jesus seeking to move in and to be one who would redeem this people. Look at the change here in verse 14, now affected. Verse 14, we turn and we begin to hear remarkable news for the Israelites. God speaks and he says, And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Can you imagine 600,000 people breathing, breathing a collective sigh of relief, recognizing how close they were to getting what they wanted, but losing God in the process. So close to getting what they wanted, but losing God in the process. And he says, I will go with you. I will give you rest. Moses, unwilling to rest on this word alone, has the heart cry that has got to be the heart cry of each and every one of us over the next three years as we begin to raise this money and renovate our facilities. This is what he says. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. This has been my prayer for us from the very beginning. God, if we're not ready to surrender everything we have, don't lead us up from this place. If you have not yet made us into the people that you desire us to be, don't lead us in this direction. Don't lead anybody to give great gifts. Do not tempt us. Do not put things before us that would seek to distract us from being your people. This is why over and again I have said, if you ever say to me or you heard said in the community that the most important thing Ridgecrest did in 2016 and on was to renovate our facilities and raise this money, I have failed. Moses has this terrific call. He says, if you will not go with us, do not bring us up. Can that be our prayer as a people? That our vision is not to raise this money and renovate our facilities, but our vision is that God would use that to make us a people whose hearts are firmly held in his hand and he is shaping and guiding us. If you're not going to leave us, lead us up from this place, then don't bring us up from here. Don't let us leave. Let's close out with verse 16. Look what he says. This is why it's so important. He says, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? And as says, getting to the land does not communicate anything about our favor with God. Building this and raising this money does not say anything about us finding favor with God. He said, Is it not your going with us that we are distinct? It's God being with us in this pursuit that makes us distinct. It's us entrusting our finances, our heart, our direction to God that makes us distinct. And why is that? It is his presence in our lives. Is it not your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? We have an opportunity over the next 36 plus months to be a people transfixed on Jesus to have our eyes completely set on him, our identity as a corporate body can be such that we would be a people who say, God, if you're not going to lead us up from here, don't let us go. Can I ask that you would pray that with me?
that I ask that your family would take on that mantle, that your family would take on that, that call to be so incredibly held and captivated by God that you would never say that if we raise this money and renovate our facilities, we've accomplished it. We have to be a people instead who say we want to be known by our identity with Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you give us an opportunity to be known by you, to be shaped by you. God, this morning, we pray that you would help that to be our constant cry. And Father, we pray for those who have yet to surrender themselves to your Son. Recognize Hebrews 3 says that that Jesus is a better Moses, that Moses was a servant in the house, but Jesus is a son over the house. Just as Moses sought to intercede on behalf of the Israelites, so too Jesus allowed himself to be a sacrifice to return us to you. Jesus surrendered his life. He took on all of our sin. He took on death, and you have raised him back to life, and you call us to walk in light of that transformation. So God, we pray for those who have yet to surrender themselves to your son, that they would allow themselves to be forgiven by you, redeemed by you, owned by you, and that they would set all of their intensity and focus on living a life that would be pleasing to you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.